And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where normally we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. But once a month, we don't do that. When the moon is full. (laughs) That's right. Today is one of our special bonus episodes on horror adjacent films. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. I am excited for tonight's movie. That's good. Why do you say it like that? <laughs> was that saying it strange? I just <laughs> was saying you were like, I thought I was being normal. I'm just a little on eggshells, uh, perhaps because of the movie. Do you want to introduce it? Sure. So tonight we are watching the thriller Gaslight from 1944, which is based on an earlier 1940 film, which is based on an earlier 1938 play. Good job. Nice. That's right off the dome. Um, I feel like this episode is going to have a lot of similarities with our main series episode on the 1941 remake of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of overlap there. Um, It feels like today in 2021... This movie is now like less famous than the buzzword um, that it has like spawned. Sure. Because I I don't really know if like gaslighting is like a technical psychological term, but it certainly is a term that people really enjoy throwing around a lot nowadays so i think it's probably used in professional circles but it did not exist before this movie yes and um the movie the play all adaptations they don't use the term gaslighting it it is a vague term so it's important to be specific about these sorts of things um to gaslight someone is to either intentionally or not manipulate that person into questioning their reality So it could be, like, if you really want to extend that kind of definition, it could include, I've got your nose, and then pushing (laughs) that joke way too far and the kids, like, bawling their eyes out. Hmm. But it is a very loose term. It really is just about making the victim question their own perceptions, um, even to to the point of uh, questioning their own emotional reaction. So they think that, like, am I overreacting? Am I making a mountain out of a molehill? Is this all just like something I'm cooking up and it isn't actually a big deal? It's a common behavior in abusive relationships that is easily discussed by using the title of this movie in which said behavior also occurs as like a verb. Yeah. If you know, if you follow me, like the term does not exist before this movie. Um, It doesn't even really like, as you say, come from the movie in the sense that nobody uses it in that way in this movie. It's just gaslight is the name of this movie this movie depicts that kind of behavior. So we use the name of the movie to describe that kind of behavior in absence of like a more technical term that would be longer and harder to remember. Yeah. 
my personal opinion is that the term spawned from like cultural critics, not psychologists mm. and people who would be studying or attempting to help like social workers attempting to help people in abusive relationships. I think it's seen a huge growth recently mm. because of this growing overlap between um, psychological, mental health, social work language, and media criticism yeah. language that we see online nowadays. Um, and I'm sure that there could be many an episode on a different podcast to really dive into that phenomena. Yeah, but it's not this podcast. But no. I, I felt it was important to just sort of up top be like, hey, listener, you probably know this term more than you do this movie even. Here's the relationship, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because like, seeing this movie might help you understand like why the word gaslight, which otherwise has nothing to do with the behavior it's describing... Right. Like you could make a case, but even in the mood, like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's akin to how like talking about kryptonite as someone's weakness is like, just like, you can just say that and you don't normally stop the whole conversation to be like, because you see, there's this comic book character named Superman and in the Superman comics, and blah, blah, blah. like people just get what you mean, even if they aren't familiar yeah. with Superman. Yeah. So as earlier mentioned um <laughs> this movie has a pedigree uh and uh this story is older than the movie that we're watching tonight so let's head back to the beginning and the origins of this gaslight story so our playwright here is named patrick hamilton his full name is anthony walter patrick hamilton and he was born in March 1904 in Sussex, England, to a poor family. Now, the, the family struggled financially uh, because both parents were writers. <laughs> yeah, that'll make your family struggle financially for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, but also his father was uh, an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but since... Playing on hard mode over here. Yeah. Um... Since both parents were writers, though, they knew that education was a priority for their children. So they made sure that young Patrick went into schools. However, uh, they would frequently be moving from boarding house to boarding house. So he would be taken out of school quite often. And uh, so his schooling was interrupted. His schooling ended when he was around 15 and to help put money on the table, he started writing as well. <laughs> Nobody in this family <laughs> has the idea of, like, maybe just get a job at the corner store. Um, listen. Bust some tables. Uh, his first published work was a poem, uh, published that year at 15 years old. At the same time, his sister went into acting. Only marginally better. <laughs> Patrick uh, gave the stage a try as well, but found he preferred authoring the plays. He began to work on novels as well, publishing his first novel titled Monday Morning in 1925 at age 21. He continued to write novels, and with more under his belt, he decided to give playwriting a go and came up with Rope. Yep. At age 25. Yep. His first play ever. 
this is a big deal because oh uh, Rope is a fantastic play and has a fantastic adaptation by Hitchcock in the 40s, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Now, as you said, he's he's kind of playing on hard mode as a kid. Uh, so he had a bit of a rough childhood. He has seen a bit of the underbelly of English society, and uh, he really didn't like much of modern society. Mm. He had a uh, general acerbic demeanor, kind of a uh, black comedic kind of writing. Mm, what they call a caustic wit. Yes. And this approach to the world and tone in his writings, you could argue, is exacerbated because he had ongoing troubles with alcoholism himself, as well as chronic pain after being run over by a car uh, when he was in his late 20s. Mm-hmm. He spent the 1930s writing more novels and then returned to the stage again to offer critique of what we would now call toxic masculinity uh, with the play Gaslight in 1938. Now, the 30s saw the rise of fascism, and in response to that, Hamilton became a Marxist and a staunch anti-capitalist. Then as uh, World War II came to a close um, and we entered uh, post-war England, he struggled a lot with his mental health um, because of like the rise and fall of fascism. But seeing those kinds of ideas still throughout his own society, as well uh, as uh, his mother committing suicide um, in these years. So Hamilton became more and more disillusioned with society writ large. And his novels and works became more and more negative and hostile. This trend is kind of concurrent with um, his growing use and reliance upon alcohol. And ultimately, all of this contributed to a declining career and health. He died in 1962 at age 58 from cirrhosis of his liver. Now, as he passed away in 1962, he would have seen the success and popularity of his work Rope, and especially Gaslight. As I said, Gaslight was written in 1938 and was titled A Victorian Thriller. So just to really like hammer home, this is not horror, this is thriller. Mm -hmm. It's set in 1880 and uh, features an upper middle class family, Jack Manningham and his wife, Bella. By the start of the play, Bella is already anxious and uh, believes that she could be hearing things like footsteps in the ceiling. She thinks the gas lamps are dimming. Uh, she th- keeps like misplacing things. And so she's already a little unsure of her own perceptions. And this is because Jack is convincing her that she's imagining things, um, including imagining his flirting with uh, their maids. Then a police detective, uh, Ruff, I think. How's the name spelled? It's spelled Ruff. Okay. But it might be Roe or Rue. The Brits are strange. The Brits are strange. Now, the reason Ruff has entered is because he's investigating a cold case of a murder that happened in the flat upstairs. Um, a rich woman was brutally murdered. The culprit was never caught. And her jewels and jewelry were never found. And as Ruff is talking with Bella through the play, he starts to show and kind of explain to Bella that uh, it's actually her husband who is causing 
these strange noises um, and causing her to doubt her sanity. Uh, the noises that she hears is actually her husband going upstairs and uh, searching through the attic for these missing jewels um, because he is the murderer. The gas lamps dim because he turns on the lights upstairs and that causes the flow to fluctuate to the lamps. So hence the flickering lights. Hence the title of the play. Hence the psychological abuse term. Now you know. (laughs) The more you know. And eventually the detective convinces Bella to help him catch Jack. Um, Now in the climax, Bella, you know, kind of seems to waver and appears like she's actually going to help Jack escape, but then ends up turning him in and has like a final line of like, after all, I am insane. Right, Jack? Hmm. And just kind of like needling him a bit with that. The play was very successful. Um, and after 141 performances, it closed um, in June 1939. And it was so well regarded that the BBC um, brought the stage actors back for a televised version of the play. Hmm. In 1939? Yeah. All right. That'd be a very early televised program. Now, as they say, when one door closes, another door opens. And uh, the following year, 1940, we had a film adaptation in Britain of Gaslight. Now, this starred an old friend of the show, mm-hmm. uh, Anton Walbrook. Yeah, perfect kind of role for him. Absolutely. Like, very much he's suited to this kind of role. Um, so he is the husband. The wife is played by Diana Winyard. And the film was directed by Thorold Dickinson. Who we also know. Do we? He directed The Queen of Spades, also starring Anton Walbrook. What year? 49. Oh, okay. So nine years later. That's mm-hmm. cool. A little reunion. Yeah. Aww. (laughs) Now, with it being adapted to film, the play had to go through some edits. So now, um, the woman who is murdered upstairs, her name is Alice Barlow, and she is actually the aunt of Bella, the wife. Right, okay. So she's murdered, it's never solved, the jewels are never found, and years later, newlyweds Paul and Bella uh, move into her aunt's place in London. Once they move in, Bella begins misplacing objects, hearing things, etc. Paul is uh, saying like, no, it's all in your head. Why do you keep losing things? When suddenly a uh, Scotland Yard detective by the name of B.G. Ruff gets introduced and the film continues as usual. Now, as I'm sure Ben will explain later on uh, and go into more detail, Many prints of this 1940 adaptation were destroyed, purposefully, by MGM, but it was found and restored in 2015 by the British Film Institute. So that's in England, 1940. Mm -hmm. But across the pond, we have (laughs) our own gaslight craze going on. Right, yes. In 1941, um, there was a, like, very low-budget adaptation, um kind of called a uh, three-hander play where it's just like two or three people on stage doing the things. Um, And a young Vincent Price saw this three-hander play with his wife, actress, Edith Barrett. And they looked at each other and they were like, this is good, but we can make it better. They set themselves to adapting it to Broadway. By 1941, this 
adaptation of theirs opened on Broadway under the name Angel Street, with the idea that Angel Street is where the house is and where the murder takes place and all of that jazz. Mm -hmm. So Price was playing Manningham. Uh, His wife, by this point, had gone to the movies uh, instead of the stage. So he has playing opposite him Canadian actress Judith Evelyn. And it was a huge fucking hit. A huge hit. Um, Price left the play after a year. He and Judith really hated each other, actually. Mm. Uh, In her own words, she called it a mutual violent dislike. Mm. (laughs) So he he goes off and then he goes to the movies as well. And we get to talk about him in the normal programming of Scream Scene. For the stage version, he was replaced by John Emery, who we've also talked about in Scream Scene. And the play continued until December 1944 with nearly 1,300 performances on Broadway, making it one of the longest-running non-musicals on Broadway. Successful show. And during that time as well, there was also a uh, traveling troupe from the same director uh, that went across the country in 1942. So everyone's getting their gaslight on. Mm -hmm. There is a delay in the 1940 British film coming to the States. So by the time that Gaslight adaptation on film is brought over, it is renamed Angel Street in order to tie in with that Broadway play. So you might see that other name kind of listed. MGM saw this success and had dollar signs in their eyes and thus had this 1944 adaptation made. As Ben will undoubtedly explain further, um, the 1944 film was also a huge success, both at the box office and with critics. So much so that uh, NBC had a televised play version of Gaslight in 1946. Lux Radio brought on the stars of the MGM film Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman to do a radio program version Uh, again in 1946, and the following year, 1947, Charles Boyer again appeared on radio on the Screen Guild Theatre radio program in this role again. But before that, there's MGM with dollar signs in their eyes. Take it away, Ben. So part of why MGM decided to make this movie was, you know, the success of the play, the success of the 1940 British film, But also there was like a wider cycle of wife in peril Mm. movies that kind of existed at the time, beginning with 1940s Rebecca from producer David Selznick and director Alfred Hitchcock, which won Best Picture that year and, you know, continued into like a whole series of these movies, Laura... Henrik um, Ibsen just making bank. <laughs> Jane Eyre. Um, a Doll's House. Yes. Um, yeah, to put out an Ibsen title there yeah. since I named dropped him. Yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah. Like just lots of movies in this mold. Right. Um, that Gaslight was sort of part of this larger cycle that was going on. Now, when MGM bought the rights to remake Gaslight, um, they did very much the same thing that they did with their remake of Jekyll and Hyde, uh, which was they included a clause in the contract that they were able to buy up and destroy 
all the prints of the 1940 version so that it would not be held against their version. So no one could compare them. So Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be competing against an earlier version of the story. And in this way, the UK version of Gaslight did not come to the US. So the, you know, feeling for MGM was like, okay, we get to introduce the story to people. So they won't be thinking, you know, oh, well, in the earlier version, they did this. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly you had the play, but they had the advantage that the play was under a different title, uh, Angel Street. And, you know, that a play is sort of a less, it's less of a mass media yeah. than a movie, right? Like it had the traveling show, but it's still not near the kind of mass media that a film can right. be. It's, it's enough that like MGM can sort of be like based on the hit play, but not enough that you know the play well enough to like hold MGM's feet to the fire about it, right? So MGM tracked down every print they could find uh, so that they could destroy them. Uh, they even attempted to destroy the negative, but the negative remained held by the British Film Institute, which is why we can still see the 1940 version of Gaslight today. As you mentioned, uh, the British film did eventually come out in the U.S. It came out in 1953 Mm. um, under the title Angel Street, um, which was because the U.S. version of the play was called Angel Street, but also because they couldn't release it as Gaslight because the MGM remake was then still in circulation, you know, in the 50s by then. So, like, they couldn't call it that. Ironically, um, in the U.K., this film was also not released under the title Gaslight because in the UK, MGM didn't want audiences to mistake it for a re-release mm-hmm. of the Anton Walbrook version. Um, so in the UK, this movie was released as The Murder in Thornton Square. Initially, the plan for this movie was for Vincent Minnelli to direct. Um, he had just directed Cabin in the Sky for MGM and was kind of their like go-to like theater to film guy Mm -hmm. um and the other part of the plan was for hedy lamar to star in the lead female role oh that would have been cool the writers who were brought on to adapt the stage play to film uh were john van druten who is best known as the writer of the play i am a camera in the 1950s which would become the basis for cabaret screenwriter walter reich and experienced play-to-movie adaptation wizard, John Balderston. Ah, our good friend John. Yes, who we know as the writer of Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, Bride of Frankenstein, and Mad Love. Now, in adapting the play to this movie, um, they made a few changes. Um, I think almost all the characters have different names Mm. in this film version. Um, The aunt i believe becomes the wife's mother okay in this version and there's a few other changes throughout which um some of which i'll talk about in a moment van druten and reich uh pressured mgm to hire george kakor to come on and direct instead of minnelli who was at the time they felt too inexperienced to handle the film So George Kukor was born in 1899 on the Lower East Side of Manhattan to Hungarian Jewish immigrants. He began acting in school plays and recitals as a child uh, alongside future colleague David Oselznik. Oh. After school, 
Kukor became a stage manager uh, at a number of different theatrical companies, which eventually led to directing plays beginning in 1925. He directed a number of Broadway shows until 1929, when a Hollywood desperate for theatrical directing talent uh, reached out and he was signed to a contract with Paramount. After a few years at Paramount as a dialogue director, assistant director, and co-director, Kakor had something of an acrimonious split with the studio. Lawsuits were exchanged, and uh, he left to join David O. Selznick at RKO. Kakor gained a reputation for coaxing great performances from actresses. Um, He was sort of credited for discovering Catherine Hepburn, and he really liked working with her and putting her in his movies where most directors and producers sort of considered her to be difficult. And for a long time, she had a reputation as box office poison. Really? I did not know this. Yeah. Kukor kind of resented this reputation that he had. Um, He became known as a woman's director in Hollywood. So like if you had a movie that was a big starring vehicle for an actress, you got George Kukor. Um, And he didn't really like being pigeonholed that way. Um, Despite this reputation as a woman's director, the truth of the matter is that George Kukor holds the record for having directed the most Best Actor Academy Award performances. Oh, so he's he's just a good director. Mm. When David O. Selznick hired Kukor to direct Gone with the Wind, Kukor initially wanted Hepburn for Scarlett O'Hara, but Selznick wouldn't hear of it. While working on pre-production for Gone with the Wind, Kukor briefly worked on The Wizard of Oz after its first director, Richard Thorpe, was fired, but before its third director, Victor Fleming, was brought on. Meanwhile, Kukor's slow pace of work on Gone with the Wind, along with difficulties working with Clark Gable due to Gable's resistance to being directed by a homosexual, uh, would lead to Selznick firing Kakor from Gone with the Wind and replacing him with Victor Fleming, leading to Victor Fleming being replaced on The Wizard of Oz by King Vidor. The interrelated history of Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz is so interesting. (laughs) Other significant Kakor films include the 1936 version of Romeo and Juliet starring Norma Shear, the 1940 version of The Philadelphia Story starring Catherine Hepburn, the 1950 version of Born Yesterday starring Judy Holliday, the 1954 version of A Star is Born starring Judy Garland, and the 1964 version of My Fair Lady starring Audrey Hepburn, for which Kukor would win the Academy Award for Best Director. He would pass away at age 83, and he had five other Best Director Oscar nominations. Wow. Big deal guy. Mm-hmm. Kukor pushed for Ingrid Bergman to be cast in the lead role of Gaslight, um, which David O. Selznick, who she was under contract to, was highly resistant about. Selznick and Bergman felt that her image was one of like a strong woman who like didn't need no man, (laughs) you know, um, was, you know, someone who could take care of herself and, and all this kind of thing. And therefore couldn't pull off the like, frailty needed for the role in gaslight and you know that her image might be harmed by like her going through like a nervous breakdown and and kind of having that hysterical appearance um but kakor met with bergman privately and convinced her that for the role to work 
it had to go to an actress who the audience wouldn't be expecting to go mad. Mm-hmm. That if he cast an actress like known to do that kind of frail, high-strung part, like a Betty Davis type, that like the drama of the film would be lost. And so Bergman was convinced, and once she was convinced, she like desperately wanted the part. So she begged Selznick to let her do it, um, like in tears, like just desperate for it. And Selznick eventually acquiesced, but there was one other hitch. Actor Charles Boyer had been cast as the male lead, and at the time, the French actor was one of the top male leads in Hollywood romance. Born in 1899, Boyer began acting on stage in Paris in the 1920s. He quickly began appearing in silent film as well, crafting a persona as a suave and sophisticated ladies' man. The coming of sound was a boon to his career due to his deep voice, and he quickly became an in-demand romantic lead. Throughout the 1930s, he alternated between French films and English-language films in Hollywood, sort of bouncing back and forth. In the late 1930s, he would appear in a string of romantic roles that would cement his appeal in the U.S. He basically typified the, like, French romantic lover archetype. Um, His most famous role would be in the film Algier, where he played a character named Pepe Lamoco, who is the basis for the character Pepe Le Pew. Okay. He stayed in Hollywood making films during World War II um, because the French government felt he was more valuable making movies in Hollywood than (laughs) fighting in the war. But by the 1940s, he was showing signs of middle age. Um, He was losing his hair. He had some paunch. Um, you know, he would wear toupees for his roles. Um, and so he he was kind of looking to move out of romantic roles by this point. Like, he was getting a little too old to be playing them. You know, he needed to show that he could do other things. Um, and he felt that Gaslight was an excellent opportunity uh, to do so, what with the male lead being villainous. Mm-hmm. Now, due to his star status, Boyer and his management insisted on top billing over Bergman, Whereas Selznick refused to let his star actress do the picture if she did not get top billing. So Kakor arranged a compromise, uh, a technique he called sandwich billing, which he had used on the Philadelphia story. So what they did was um, the investigator character in the play in the movie. In the British versions, like he's very much a like, hello, I'm Investigator Ruff from Scotland Yard. I'm portly and have a mustache and I'm older and I'm here to be a detective, what? And so for this version, um, they beefed up his role significantly, turned him into someone who could be like an alternate romantic interest for Bergman and cast Joseph Cotton. Yes. Cotton was also under contract to David O. Selznick at the time. And so what this let them do was move his credit above the title as well so that the top three build would be Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, Joseph Cotton. So on the poster, even though Bergman's second build, her name would be flanked by the two men and be centered on the poster above the title, Mm -hmm. uh, thus highlighting her name, even though she's getting second billing. Uh, And this was a sort of common tactic at the time. Now, we talked about ingrid bergman quite a lot in our episode about the 1941 jekyll and hyde that's episode 87 if anyone wants to go take a listen so i'm not gonna like rehash that stuff here yeah um 
since appearing in Jekyll and Hyde in 1941. Uh, she had appeared in Casablanca in 1942 and For Whom the Bell Tolls mm. in 1943, increasing her star profile since then significantly. She would follow up her role in Gaslight with her role in Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound in 1945, which was yet another part of the cycle of wife in danger movies that I mentioned earlier. Kukor suggested that Bergman study patients at a mental hospital in order to learn about what like a nervous breakdown looks like. Uh, so she did so and incorporated their mannerisms into her performance. She did have a problem with her love scenes with Charles Boyer. And this was that she found them very uncomfortable and embarrassing because they were among the first scenes in the movie shot. Bergman liked to get to know her male co-stars quite well first um, before doing any romantic scenes with them because otherwise she felt very, very self-conscious. This was not helped by the fact that Boyer was a little shorter than Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid Bergman's five foot eight. Um, How tall is Humphrey Bogart? I don't know. Like, so shorter than that, for sure. Okay. I mean, she did fine with him. Yeah, because they solved it the same way they did with Boyer, which is they put him on a box. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, doesn't really help making out with your male lead who you've never met before in the first scene that you shoot with him on a box. In the future... If she found that like there were love scenes required uh, between her and a male actor really early on in the shooting schedule before she'd get much time to interact with them otherwise, she would invite her co-stars to her trailer to like make out with her in her trailer for a while first so she would be less nervous about doing it on camera. <laughs> Go Bergman. It doesn't help that Bergman actually has a, a pretty notorious reputation for getting into uh, deep... Uh, passionate romantic relationships with her male leads for the duration of shooting and basically for the duration of shooting only. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. In order to track her character's mental breakdown in the film, uh, which, you know, was shot out of sequence as with most Hollywood films, Kukor would recap the entire film's plot to her up to the scene they were shooting. At first, Bergman really resented this because she thought Kakor was treating her like a dumb Swede, and uh, she insisted that he stop doing it. But when that happened, it was found that her performance really suffered, mm -hmm. so she eventually asked him to, no, actually keep doing this. Meanwhile, Boyer was distracted through most of the shooting of the film because his wife of 10 years was finally pregnant. Okay. And uh, did indeed give birth to their only son, Michael, during the making of the movie. There was a big party on set with champagne and everything. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, she was really important to him. She passed away of cancer, and two days later, he committed suicide. Wow. So, as I mentioned, the third build performer in this film is Joseph Cotton, who was born in Virginia in 1905 and is best remembered today as a collaborator of Orson Welles. His schooling was like private acting lessons that his parents paid for. Oh, wow. I didn't um, know that. Yeah. His family was, was well off. Um, although he did pay them back for the private education, um, by playing professional football after he finished school, um, and like paying his parents back with the money from that. 
Um, after his pro football career, he worked as an advertising salesman for the Miami Herald, um, so selling ad space in the paper. Um, and that led to a side gig as the theater critic for the Miami Herald, which eventually led to him working at the local theater, like getting parts yeah. in the shows. He understudied on Broadway in the 1930s, but work was hard to get because it was the Depression. Yes. He met Wells, who was 10 years younger than him, in 1934, and Wells immediately took to him, thought that Cotton like had a natural charisma and natural comedic ability, and they became friends. Although... <laughs> Wells was sometimes a little bit like backhanded with his compliments to Cotton. He once told Cotton like that he was very lucky that he was tall and thin and had curly hair and could move about the stage without bumping into furniture. Because while these were very minor qualifications and meant that he would never probably make it as a, you know, real actor, they did qualify him for something much better, which was being a star. And in terms of being a star, he had hit the jackpot. Can I get a map to that sentence? Yeah, I mean, he's basically <laughs> saying like, listen, you're super handsome and you're not an idiot. So you're going to be a big star. You're not going to be a good actor, but you're going to be a big star. And that's better. I think he's a great actor. So Cotton became an inaugural member of Wells's Mercury Theater Company and appeared in a number of Wells plays, shows, radio productions, etc. over the next few years. In 1939, he played the lead role in The Philadelphia Story on Broadway, opposite Katherine Hepburn. But when the play became a movie, his part went to Cary Grant. It's Cary Grant. He can't compete. I'm sorry, Joe, but, like, it's Cary. Cotton's first film role, therefore, would be in Wells's Citizen Kane. And Cotton would emerge the one performer in that film's cast other than Wells himself who would actually find major Hollywood success. After Kane, Cotton would appear in the Wells Project's The Magnificent Ambersons and Journey into Fear before being cast as the villain in Alfred Hitchcock's 1943 thriller Shadow of a Doubt. And if you want to see how good of an actor he is, look to that movie. Yeah, Shadow of a Doubt is very, very good. Yes. yes. Cotton was then offered some opportunities to appear in some films produced by David O. Selznick. But Selznick, being Selznick, would only take Cotton if he was under exclusive contract to Selznick. So telling Wells about this, Wells tore up Cotton's Mercury contract and said, he can do more for you than I can. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm just having feelings. So Gaslight was Cotton's next film after Shadow of a Doubt, although he would reunite with Wells for 1949's The Third Man. So for the role of the quote slutty housemaid unquote <laughs> nancy writer van druten noted to george kakor that british actress moina mcgill was in the u.s as a refugee and had brought with her her 17 year old daughter who van druten felt would be perfect for the part the girl had no acting experience but she wowed Kakor at the audition. He considered her to be a natural talent and hired her right away. So Angela Lansbury went to her boss at the Bullock's department store and told him that she was leaving her job. Her boss, assuming that her new job was probably something similar to the $25 a week he was paying her, offered to best 
the other employer's salary in order to keep her at the department store and then was quite um flabbergasted when she informed him that her new salary was five hundred dollars a week now we talked so he he wouldn't match that. no no no, no. (laughs) not for you know a department store girl we talked about angela lansbury at length in our picture of dorian gray episode that's episode 128 and that film came out in 1945 yeah it's literally the next movie she did after this one yeah um so i'm not going to go into a ton of detail about angela lansbury again um however i'll note a couple of fun things about her performance in this movie in order to project menace lansbury was required to be taller than bergman but angela lansbury was the same height as ingrid bergman so lansbury wore platforms and lifts but boyer's character had to be taller than both of them Mm. and he was in fact shorter than both of them so with lansbury on lifts they couldn't really put like Boyer on bigger lifts because at a certain <laughs> point you're just on stilts, right? Yeah. So he just, you know, is on boxes for like the majority of the movie. <laughs> I love hearing about these behind the scenes things. Kakor mm. <laughs> believed that a great part of the picture's effectiveness was due to the production design by German refugee Paul Holdschinski. Kakor wanted the film to feel claustrophobic mm. and for the set to be filled with period details. Um, he really wanted that Victorian era to come out. Being able to access MGM's vast library of props, they filled the sets with distinctive knickknacks, which could then be, you know, used in the story as like, oh, wasn't that over there? And that kind of thing. Ultimately, the film won an Academy Award for Best Art Direction, in addition to Best Actress for Ingrid Bergman. It was nominated, but did not win Best Picture, Best Actor for Charles Boyer, Best Supporting Actress for Angela Lansbury. Whoa, wait, her first role that she got a nom. Yeah. Damn. Uh, Best Screenplay and Best Black and White Cinematography. Gaslight was released on May 4th, 1944 and made $4.6 million against its $2 million budget. Yeah, so much money. It was highly critically acclaimed and it remains a classic. Although some modern critics do prefer the original 1940 version now, um, you know, they find it, it's subtlety to be superior, um, but you know, teach their own. Yeah. Today, uh, Gaslight is available on iTunes, Google Play, the Microsoft Video Store, YouTube, Amazon, and on Blu-ray from the Warner Archive Collection. Lots of opportunities to watch this movie if you would like to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Gaslight from 1944, directed by George Cukor. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everyone. We just finished watching Gaslight from 1944, directed by George Cukor. Um, Ben, first thoughts? This is a really good movie. Yes. It's a classic. Yes. 
Um, like I said at the top, uh, this is a movie that I've been wanting to see for a while. So I was pretty stoked when our patrons voted for it for this bonus episode. But it was a difficult watch uh, as someone who has gone through and been witness to others being in uh, controlling, manipulative relationships. Sure, sure. Uh, so I will just put out there that, you know, trigger warning, nothing really graphic that we'll be going into. The movie itself isn't graphic or anything, but, it, you know, just a heads up that that is the content. Right. Content warning for gaslighting and gaslight. <laughs> yes. I don't want to assume. Sure. You know, assuming makes an ass out of you and me. So it's just better to be right up front. Sure. So let me tell folks what it's about, and then we can get into it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the film opens with the opera singer Alice Alquist having been murdered. She was found by Paula, her 12-year-old niece. And Paula, played by Ingrid Bergman, is clearly very traumatized by this. Paula, at an early age, lost her parents. So she was being raised by Alice. And now with Alice gone, she is sent to Italy to basically be raised and trained as an opera singer. We pick up with Paula 10 years later. Um, she is continuing to train, but it seems to be faltering because Paula is in love. And as you know, you can't be a successful artist if you are also in love. Yes, because that means that you're happy. Yeah, and you can't do art if you're happy. I hate that message. But anyways, <laughs> that's that's the joke basically they're playing it for a little bit of like tongue-in-cheek fun anyways mm. she is in love with the pianist named gregory they are in a bit of a whirlwind romance and they get married in the italian countryside and now they have to figure out like where are we gonna live and gregory shares like you know i've always wanted to live in london in like this little square in a brownstone and have servants and Paula's like, oh, I mean, I have that, but it is where my aunt was murdered, and I don't know about going back there. But for you, Gregory, I love you so much. Maybe I can get over that trauma with you by my side. So they move to London. They definitely don't call them brownstones in London, but that's that's all right. I think everybody knows what you meant. <laughs> what do they call them? Um, like, it's just like a townhouse or a tall house. Like, it's okay. just a house. Like, because Brownstone's like a very specifically New York City, like, term. I thought that was just the name of the style of house. Like, it's definitely the same kind of house. Okay. Um, but I, I don't think you'd find, it's like, it's like nobody in Detroit is going to call a pickup truck a lorry. Like, I just don't sure. think you're going to find anyone in London calling them a brownstone, <laughs> is all. I apologize, yeah. uh, especially for any English listeners who are like, uh, what's she bloody going on about? <laughs> Gosh, stop. <laughs> Quit while you're behind. Anyway, so they move in and they're super stoked about it. Um, but they get there and Paula's like, no. Uh, everything is exactly the way it was that night. Uh, I, I can't deal with all of this old furniture. So they decide to take all of that furniture, the trunks, all of her aunt's possessions, and lock them up in the attic. 
While they are deciding this, Paula does discover this letter that falls out of some music, and it's from um, almost like an admirer to her aunt from a man named Sergius Bauer. And upon like seeing this and seeing that the letter was delivered like two days before her aunt's murder, Gregory like snatches it and seems to be like really mad. And then he's like, no, I'm just worried that it's going to like worsen your feelings about this place. But don't worry about the letter. And it's kind of your first sign that something seems a little strange. But the weeks go on and Paula seems to be doing all right. Gregory does note that she seems to be getting a little forgetful. She keeps losing things, possibly hearing things like uh, things up in the attic or like the sounds of someone walking around, the gaslight lamps going down. She ends up actually losing a a brooch that he gives her um, and she feels like really upset about it. Things in the house like pictures keep getting moved and... When they ask the servants about it, they're like, no, we didn't move that stuff. Um, And Gregory's like, well, I didn't move it. So Paula, like, you must have moved it and forgotten. Um, And starts out with like these little tiny things of like, oh, you're always forgetting things. Don't worry, dear. Into like full on like, well, if you think the servant stole it, like you're the one who knew where to find the picture. Um, So clearly you took it. Kind of uh, accusing Not helping the situation is um, a maid, Nancy, uh, is hired. Gregory kind of flirts with her. Nancy is also very, like, forward with him. And she's just continually kind of antagonizing Paula. So that's pretty much all the same as what we've seen in the previous versions that we outlined. Um, Really, the only main difference is, like, the relationship between Paula and Alice. Um, It's much more of, like implied maternal feeling here in this version the main differences with the past adaptations seem to be with brian cameron uh played by joe cotton so to introduce him he is the assistant to the scotland yard commissioner and he recognizes paula um because brian was a big fan of alice alquist when he was a young kid Um, And he's shocked when he sees Paula because he says, like, she looks exactly like Alice. So he's kind of like, I thought she was dead. Is that a ghost? And then kind of looks into it. Now, because he was a fan of Alice, he paid a lot of attention to the uh, case of her murder. Um, And as he is now assistant to the commissioner, he starts digging through the case files. And, you know, that's how we get some exposition about jewels were never found, murderer was never found, all of that jazz. He also starts to, like, be a little concerned about Paula. Um, They sort of would be running in the same circles, except she is never really going out to these social events, um, especially not alone. Gregory is always with her, and he begins to notice that they have a little bit of a weird relationship, um, as Gregory is a little controlling. Paula has some weird behaviors. Gregory does notice that Brian is, like kind of always around and he seems to be getting jealous but Paula doesn't know who Brian is at all. Brian um follows Gregory uh one night uh with the help of like the local constable of the neighborhood and he sees Gregory enter like the back alley and go into like the side house of their street. So he's like, "Well, this is this is really weird. Why would he be doing this?" Eventually Brian is able to talk to Paula and kind of confront her with like what's going on like 
what are the things that you have been told? Like, why do you think you're going insane? Uh, the gaslight thing is real. The noises are real. All of these things aren't just your perceptions. It's all real. Um, so what what is going on? And he kind of puts together that Gregory is Sergius Bauer. He is the murderer of Alice Elquist, and he is searching for the jewels. Um, now he has to leave in a hurry because Gregory is coming back. And as he leaves, um, the cook of the house, Elizabeth, who's kind of on Paula's side here, he mentions like everything we do right now is going to help her welfare and keep her out of like the madhouse and also save her life. So Gregory comes home and, uh, he notices that some things are out of place. And so he confronts Paula and Paula says, no, it wasn't me. Uh, she lets out that there was a man here. Elizabeth let him in. And when Gregory confronts Elizabeth about it, she's like, what man? Now Paula is like, oh, was that all in my head? Am I actually crazy? I had this glimmer of hope and now I'm actually full on crazy. But luckily Brian Israel, he shows up and he has fisticuffs with Gregory and manages to tie him up as the police are arriving. Paula does get to confront him and kind of have it out. Uh, it looks like she's going to help him escape, um, but then is able to kind of take a, a bit of revenge on him by saying like, no, this can't be a knife in my hand uh, to cut you loose. I'm crazy, right? And, like, if I wasn't crazy, maybe I could have helped you and maybe I could have, like, pitied you and maybe we could have, like, moved past this. Um, but I, I'm crazy, so I, I guess I hate you. Oops. I, where's the knife I was holding? I, I guess I must have lost it. I, I, I lose things so often. Where was it again? Yeah. yeah just, just, like, doing a bit of some vengeful mocking. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so Gregory is taken away by the cops and uh, we get left with um, her and Brian kind of ruminating on, like, her experience. And he says, like, you'll get over this. Like, the night is passing. Things will be all right. And yeah. it's implied, like... Maybe they'll get together. Yeah. The end. Yeah. So I didn't mention some characters. Like, there is a, like, a Miss Thwaites, who is, like, a nosy neighbor who is a little bit of a comedic relief, especially at the end, um, and also a source of a lot of exposition. Um, but, you know, for the most part, that that's the story. Yeah. What did you think, Ben? Sure. I mean, so obviously the movie is good. Yeah. Um, Bergman and Boyer are both great in their performances. The production design and the cinematography are both fantastic. And, like wow, does Angela Lansbury do a lot with kind of like a nothing part, to yeah. be honest? Yeah. Um, it's, I am a little shocked that she got a supporting actress nomination because the part is so small. Yeah. Like I kept expecting that Nancy would like start having an affair with Gregory and, like, become his, like, accomplice in doing all the things around the house necessary to make Paula think she's going crazy. But that never quite happens. Mm -hmm. She's just kind of there. And if this was another movie, she would just, you know, be there. I mean, it is the kind of role that you would let some first-time actress play because it's it's nothing. Yeah. And I think it speaks to how much confidence Angela Lansbury has in her performance and how much 
screen presence she has and how much like immediate out of the gate charisma she has that you like remember the part that you remember it as being a bigger part of the movie than it is. And that like the, you know, Academy was like, yeah, we should give an Oscar nomination to this actress when like, you know, like this is the kind of thing where this is why up and coming actresses in Hollywood in this period, like would take the role of like, the executive's secretary who yeah. has like three lines that are like, call for you, Mr. Jones, your wife on line four, Mr. Jones, your coat, Mr. Jones. And they would take these roles because like the hope was like, maybe you can do something with this enough that like someone will notice you. Yeah. And like, holy shit, is Angela Lansbury doing that? You know? Yeah. Um. It was like... I think she, she has some natural chemistry with Charles Boyer, mm-hmm. um, especially when she has that one moment where she's very forward with him. I think like it's a subtleness, mm. but it's like Angela. Yeah. Uh, so I think she really owns it. Yeah. Um, is And I think Charles helps really bring forward her performance mm. with his reactions. Like they feel very like... Um, natural sure um it doesn't feel like and now i do this because i'm acting with someone who has no experience um it especially in that scene like he seems surprised as well Mm -hmm. i think maybe boyer comes on like a little strong at the beginning of the movie like when you know the twist and you know the answer to the mystery and you know what's happening it feels like the movie plays its hand a little too strong a little too early but at the time, I think it must have helped that he was playing against type. Yes, but I, I also was like, because he gave the context of him being in these romantic roles and stuff, um, I thought it was a little metatextual mm-hmm. that he's being so romantic in the beginning and that it's you, you ignore those red flags that you might uh, seeing it knowing the twist because you're like, yeah, this is exactly the part that he would play. It's one of those things where, like, I feel like now this is probably one of the most famous roles that he has. And if anything, like, I think Ingrid Bergman is more famous than Gaslight. But I think Gaslight is more famous than Charles Boyer now. Like, I don't think people remember him the way that they remember, like, Cary Grant or Clark Gable, right? And so the cleverness of his casting is sort of diminished a little bit. It's kind of like Janet Lee in Psycho, mm. where the big twist of Psycho is that, like, the lead character dies, like, a third of the way into the movie. Yeah. And that twist doesn't work anymore because the shower scene is the most famous scene in the fucking movie. And more people know Janet Lee as the chick who dies in psycho than in anything else. Whereas like an audience at the time would be like, Oh, Janet Lee's a big star. She must be the main character. Right. So same sort of thing. Yeah. Just subverting those expectations. Yeah. And I think he does a really good job of uh, convincing us of that romance. I don't know. I was really impressed with the movie and this is also what made it a little hard to watch. 
in a way that made it a comfort that I knew the ending. Sure. Because the movie does position it as she's going crazy. Mm-hmm. You don't see him um, hiding the brooch. You don't see him like putting the picture away to make her think she put it away. You yeah. know, it looks and is constructed like, no, she is going crazy. Uh, so you believe it along with her. Um, so it was like, because I knew the twist, I took comfort in that because I knew he's going to get his comeuppance. But otherwise, you would have been caught up in the the story of it. And as someone who has gone through manipulative, controlling relationships, um, it was a little, it hit really close to home. The movie is designed like as a mystery. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it's like, is she going crazy or isn't she? What's really going on? And so, yeah, you don't know explicitly that he's fucking with her because the movie is so famous and the premise so well known. Now, when people watch it, like they know. Um, And if you know watching the movie, like you can see it and it makes sense. Like you can see the way that he's manipulating her. Like the fact that her brooch goes missing when he gives it to her, you can see the fact that he's making like a huge show Mm -hmm. of giving it to her. And not only that, but like a huge show of putting it in her purse and being like, I'm going to put this in your bag. So you don't forget. See Paula, see how you're watching me right now. Put this in your bag so that when it's not in the bag, it's, it's like very clear that it should be. I think that the movie, although it does not tip its hand as to like, what's really going on does make it clear that something's going on that even without knowing that uh, Gregory's trying to make her go crazy, you can sense that there's something wrong with what's going on here because Gregory's like, Oh, she's too ill to go out. She can't do anything. She has to stay home. And everybody's like, well, she seems fine to me. You know, like, you know, something weird is happening. Yeah. I did appreciate those moments, but I think it's also why it would be a little challenging to adapt this to like a modern context because that idea of the husband will like it's his responsibility to manage the household and your Mm. health and everything as a woman um, isn't as acceptable nowadays. Like in the Victorian age, even in like the like 1930s or whatever, whenever Dial M for Murder is set, like it was still kind of like, yeah, he'll handle it. You don't worry about a thing. Right. So if he says you're sick, trust what he says. Right, exactly. And, you know, that's his prerogative. It's his household. I think that while the movie is a, like, useful model to point to when talking about abuse... The thing that's important to remember about this movie specifically, if we're making those real world comparisons, is that most abusive spouses don't need to be motivated by an extremely convoluted long con to get some jewels in order to be abusive. Yes, that is <laughs> just the the way that's the plays out. That's the movies out, yeah. et cetera. Um, if you really want to look at like an abusive relationship or rather the way that it's like 
he's not a villain, like a capital V mm. villain. Um, he's just an insecure kind of guy. Uh, you can look to Henrik Ibsen's A Dollhouse as probably like a really good example for that because the way that he is condescending, treating her a bit like a child, like all of that would kind of be considered textbook and also like a little bit normal for the time as mm -hmm. well. Like, or at least like not a red flag in the way that, I mean, I certainly see them as red flags, but again, sure. that's, I, I know what to look for now, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, the movie's a useful model. It's a useful tool in saying like, hey, this is what this kind of thing can look like. But it is, you know, I think for a very long time, and even today somewhat, but I think we're a little bit better at this today. But for a very long time, people had a very hard time accepting the idea of someone doing bad things without like a motive. Devious motive. Right, exactly. And, you know, so he has this devious motive here that explains everything. Um, and yeah, you're right that it kind of lets them off the hook a bit. What it really enables them to do is it enables them to make a movie about a abusive um, marriage like this without making people in the audience feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's also like a, a simpler way of mm. doing the story. It's much more complicated to tell a story about how the um, abuser and the relationship is doing so because of their own insecurities, their own like beliefs of how a relationship should go um, about a myriad of different things, because that's all like very psychologically motivated and you can't pinpoint to like, ah, well, they were disciplined by, through spanking as a child, and that's why they hit their spouse. Right. Um, that There's not a one-to-one. -one. It's a very convoluted thing, even to the point where, like, it's difficult to talk about by um, social workers and psychologists today, right? Well, and the other thing is making it part of a scheme. Yeah. Honestly, just makes it a better story in yeah. terms of being like an entertaining narrative. Yeah, like, well cuz the story needs well-defined like plot points, right? Yeah, and like you need to feel like there was, you know, a point. A point to it, exactly. Yeah. It also enables an easier happy ending. Mm -hmm. Um there's a few other like weird details that the movie throws in that are probably not necessary but are there to like massage that happy ending as well, like it's brought up at one point, like Brian's done some digging into Sergius Bauer and he's like, oh yeah, he already has a wife back in Prague. Um, and that's never really like elaborate on or explained or anything, but it's there to tell you like, oh, okay. So then that means that his marriage to Paula is actually invalid. Um, therefore he can just get hauled off to jail and Paula can start having a romance with Brian right away without needing to like get a convoluted weird divorce yeah. basically because the marriage was invalid. So she's just okay to start having another love interest, Absolutely. like things like that, that, that massage that happy ending. Um, but yeah, like there's always been kind of a push pull in storytelling for a long time now of like realism versus not 
<laughs> and, you know, so someone might say like, well, it is a better story to show like the actual like complexities of human psychology and, and to really show that like people can be like this without any kind of devious motive. And I, that's fair. Like that's a fair viewpoint to have, but that's a harder story to tell in a way that an audience is going to like enjoy. Like there's and a, like a movie you have 90 minutes, two yeah. hours to do that whereas in a mini series um or like an ongoing television s- series mm. with serialized storytelling you are better able to d- dive into those complex themes yeah, than you can gray. exactly i think you know there's a reason why gaslight is a classic that people still remember and reference and you know stuff like scenes from a marriage um, are classics, but like not cultural touchstones in that same way, because more people are going to watch this and see this and enjoy this and remember this. Right. And, you know, they might not watch this movie and think, Oh, this is, you know, depicting an abusive marriage. They're thinking like, Oh, this is a mystery thriller. Like, is she crazy? Isn't she? But because they remember this movie, because it has a strong story, because it has all the right mystery details of like, you know, Chekhov's glove and, <laughs> and everything. Um, later, when they see a real abusive situation, they can go, oh, this is like Gaslight, mm-hmm. right? That's sort of what's going on here. Um, yeah. And neither, I feel like saying, well, this is a better story to go deeper or to have a simpler narrative like better. Nah, I'm not going to do that. It's a different way of telling the story. There's a reason why stories get told this way. Yeah. There's a reason why it is effective to make narratives that have real world issues as a theme Mm -hmm. rather than just make a narrative about that real world issue. Because sometimes those themes stick with you more when they have a strong narrative or characters that they're being pinned on right absolutely i do think it's almost kind of a shame that the movie's been a bit overshadowed by the term it has spawned because like it's a good effective little thriller i think people should still watch it uh it's still surprising in some ways like when elizabeth says that no the man wasn't real because she's you know covering Mm -hmm. but i was like Oh no, then Paula's going to think she's actually crazy. I I know this story. I, I've heard this story a thousand times, um, especially with the term gaslighting. But it was still a surprising moment mm-hmm. to me. So this movie still has some surprises. It's still something enjoyable to watch, even if it is overshadowed by the legacy it has inspired. I I I think it's a really good movie to watch. Um just uh if you have triggers around abusive or controlling relationships, just be prepared going in. Have your comfort sure. blanket, you know? Yeah. Like I you mean, can get through it, but just, you know, have your comfort blanket because there might be moments where it's a little bit of a harder time. Yeah. I think, listen, it's good to have that warning. I do think that if someone came to me and they were like upset that the movie Gaslight depicted abuse and that they weren't ready for it, I'd be like, well, you know. The movie's called Gaslight. Like, this is this is the movie. Yeah. Um, I think, for me, one of the most effective parts of the movie 
is how expertly Paula's gradual descent is handled. Like I was saying earlier that I think it tips its hand a little too early with Gregory, but with Paula, like it's believable. Yeah. The way it starts with little things gets bigger. The way you see her sanity sort of strain and then snap and yeah, Bergman's performance is, is really, really good. And I think the movie does a very good job of handling it in a way that you don't lose sympathy yeah, for Paula. Yeah, she, she walks the line really well. She doesn't just devolve really quickly. Um, and I think, like, it, it's really hard to play a role where you're depicting someone who does lose their sanity because you don't want to do it over the top. Mm. I think additionally, you know, as much as it is unfair to say things like this in real life, when you're watching a movie, because you're aware that it's a movie and, and movie characters, you know, act in certain ways and in many ways are, are more decisive, more commanding than like real people are, right? Like movie characters don't waffle about that mm-hmm. often unless the point of their character is to waffle about. I think when you watch movies about abuse it can be really easy to look at like the abused character and be like, well, why don't you just stand up to him? Yeah. Why don't you just tell him like, no, what the fuck? Like, you know, whatever. And I think the movie does a very good job of positioning everything in such a way that you aren't like yelling at Paula being like, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Well, I think they do that because there are little moments where she kind of does stand up Mm -hmm. and he finds a way to, flip the script on her whether that's moving goalposts or making it appear like um that the negative outcome is because of her or you know you're feeling bad for asking the servants to put coal on the fire well that's what you wanted paula right if you didn't like you want me to treat them as equals well then i'll flirt with her like this is what you wanted um and and so it it's done very expertly so when she just stops standing up for herself or standing up for what she wants you believe it yeah because you've seen how futile it is yeah and i did really appreciate that the movie has gregory go like like give in to her sometimes like be like oh well i'm sorry paula i didn't know it was that important to you okay let's go to the party because it does start to strain credulity if you're just showing him as a hundred percent being awful all the time. Yeah. And that's true in like real abusive relationships too, right? Like there are honeymoon period and then you go back down. Yeah. And, and there are moments where, you know, you remember why you fell in love with this person and you know, what's great about them and stuff. And if you didn't like, you wouldn't stay so long. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I'll say about Gaslight is uh, (laughs) it reminded me a lot of Mad Men. Huh. And the reason for that is in the beginning, everyone keeps telling Paula, like, forget the past, move past it, kill it if you have to. (laughs) Right. Yeah, sure. And it made me think of Don Draper constantly saying, like, this never happened. It will shock you how much this never happened. Right. And so, like, that's what started that and sparked that relationship. But then thinking about how, you know, if you wanted to show, like, the realism behind um, unhealthy relationships Hmm. and 
the psychology behind someone who becomes a manipulator and a controlling partner, um, you see that in Mad Men Mm -hmm. through different characters. And they're all very well-rounded. They all have those negative aspects. They all have positive aspects. And that's like a seven-season... Yeah, something like that. Seven. um, Long-running prestige television drama. And you can do that in the... 700 hours right of that yet gaslight manages to do it in two hours yes it's because he wanted the jewels he's fascinated by the jewels but like i think they still managed to to do a very good job i do have to say before we wrap up here like just so that it's acknowledged yes the plot of this movie is probably too far-fetched to be believed the movie does a very good job of connecting all the dots so that like within the world of the movie, it makes sense because I think you mentioned that in the original version of the story, the murder that happened like wasn't related to the lead character, like to Bella at all. Like that's something no, they that just came happened out. to move into the same place or like the flat that's underneath the place where right. it happened. But yeah, because once you start trying to, even though it might seem tidier, it might seem like, oh, well, here's how I'm going to connect everything all together so that it doesn't just seem so random or whatever. It starts to actually make less sense because it's like, wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me that Sergius, who is obsessed with these jewels, that the movie points out that he can't sell, like he can't fence them, but never actually explains then like what he was planning to do with them anyways. He's just obsessed with jewels, like he's a Batman villain. (laughs) But like, he was like, okay, I'm going to break into her house and I'm going to find these jewels and I'm going to steal them. I can't find the jewels. He kills her. The crime is interrupted by her niece. And then, like, he goes on this, like, decade-long plot to, like, become the pianist teacher at the school that she's learning yeah. singing from. Just break into the empty house. Right. It was empty for 10 years. Right. Exactly. Exactly. This whole elaborate plan, like, she'll fall in love with me, and then we'll get married, and then we'll move into the house that I've manipulated her into moving back into. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then. And, like, it makes for a fun movie plot, but it's definitely, like, not the easiest way to do this like considering especially so the crux of this plot would be that by marrying her he gets possession of the house so then he has free reign to look around for the jewels yeah except that even within that in order to look for the jewels and have her not know that he's looking for the jewels he still like leaves the house goes to an abandoned lot at the end of the street walks up to the roof of that abandoned house and then goes across the roofs of all the houses to get to his house to go down through the skylight to search. So it's like, you could have done that the whole time. Yeah. Honestly, just say like, okay, put a pin in that. Uh, side note, the way he they show him searching is just like throwing things around. <laughs> like I get, you're probably a little frustrated, but be at least a little orderly. Yeah, no wonder like, this is taking you so long. Yeah. Back to the pin, just say, like, we should catalog all of your aunt's possessions because maybe we could sell them or, like, at least know what's here rather than just throwing them all up in the attic. So I'll handle that since, Paula, I know that this upsets you. Right. Um, so instead of leaving to go work at a, like, false location and be lying and whatever, I'll just go up and do this. Yeah. And then, like, you still have, like, 
the all girl. The rest of, yeah. You, you don't have to be hiding it. Um, and I get that he wants to like make her think she's going insane so he can get possession of everything. Um, because he's also like already married and all that jazz mm-hmm. to like the chick in Prague. But like, y- y- be a little smarter about this. You don't need to be so like, you don't need to hide things. Like the easiest way to lie is to do like some things out in the open. Right. The thing is though, that like the convoluted plot doesn't feel so convoluted if it's just like, Oh yeah, I killed the woman upstairs, never found her jewels. Um, and then like, you know, the next year or a few months later, I married the woman who lives downstairs so I can have access. That's one thing. But like I groomed this gal for 10 years so that eventually I could get back into this house (laughs) is like, at what point does this not become worth it anymore? Yeah. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to point out that like the story doesn't really make sense, but that's fine. Well, folks, I hope you have enjoyed this bonus episode this month on Gaslight. Um, we're going to be having a poll go out October 1st on our Patreon for folks to vote on the October Halloween mm. bonus episode. Woo. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed. And if you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review. Tell your friends about the show or head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast if you want to vote in the polls to decide our next horror adjacent episode you gotta join the patreon you can do it for as little as a dollar a month but if you go to the five or ten dollar levels you get access to regular bonus content and there's going to be a ton of bonus content all through october as there always is lots of fun stuff so Join on up and see what's uh, coming your way at patreon.com slash podcast. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming this Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.